0: When we're talking about software bill of materials, people should not think that this is only restricted for software companies that release software. Nowadays, almost everything that you're getting includes software. If it's a medical device, a car, anything, a satellite, a train engine.
1: Hi, welcome to the Open and Intel podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Druckman, an open source evangelist here at Intel. In this episode, I speak to Alexios Zavras of Intel's Open Ecosystem Group and Kate Stewart of the Linux Foundation about software bills of materials, or SBOMs, as well as their open source community work. Please enjoy and join us for more important open source conversations. Thank you both for, for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. And I think this is going to be really valuable to the people listening, because I, I know if I were in, if I put myself back in the position where I used to be in previous roles, I would feel a little bit overwhelmed right now, I think. So uh, just to get us started and lay some groundwork, SBOM stands for Software Bill of Materials. How would you explain SBOMs in just the simplest terms and the problems they solve?
2: So, in the simplest terms, an SBOM is a set of components and the relationship between those components, okay? You you want to try to figure out what's actually in your software, what's in your system, Um, and so understanding what components are there is part. Now, the term components can have a large number of variants, and the term relationships can also have a large number of variants, and so it's figuring out what you need um, to, you know, what you want to need for your own purposes internally, what you may want to be sharing externally. These all may vary over time. And I think that's a source of a lot of the confusion and frustrations about things right now. So um, at the minimum though, it's a set of components, which could be files. It could be um, package, like, you know, formal packages. It could be disc images, you know, those are all components. And and then the relationships are you know what's inside it or what what does it contain or how is it linked or um, what's generating which things um, these are all kind of essential and you know depending on the use case uh, you have to be, have different levels of fidelity you have to get down to so it's simple case just um, components and relationships and then the devil's in the details. <laughs>
0: Yeah, expanding on that. So it's actually, think of it like in the simplest form, it's just a table of contents, right? The same way that when you uh, buy prepackaged food, it has a food label and it says what is contained therein, right? When you're getting your software, which nowadays is always complex and it has lots of things, you should be getting some way of, Uh, you should have some way of telling what's inside, right? So in the simplest form, the bill of materials is the list of components that are inside. But then, as Kate said, we can expand this and say not only what is inside, but what was used in order to create that, which doesn't necessarily end inside the final product. So,
2: yeah,
0: as Kate said, it's a list of components and relationship between them.
2: Yeah. You know, the whole concept of a bill of materials has been around in the hardware industry for forever. Okay. (laughs) It's a very, you know, it's a very, like I say, the concept is there, you're sending a box out and you're sending exactly which boards are in the box, which silicon revs are in the box, things like that. Um, So a bill of materials is something that, you know, you get something from a shipper. You get to know exactly what should be in that box with you. And this is just taking that concept into the software space.
1: I, I wonder if you could each tell me a little bit about how you arrived at the work you're doing now with with SBOMS. You know, Kate with the Linux Foundation and Alexios here at Intel.
2: Well, actually, I started working on SBOMS back when I was at Freescale. So what was happening is I was managing a worldwide team and we were shipping out um, basically BSPs, board support packages for all the revs of silicon across uh, Freescale and there's about 50 packages there, and you know the kernel would be updating, the U would be updating, the tool chains would be updating, and you know upstream they might be updating a bit. Um, and then you know we had to basically bring them all together and put them in with the um, boards as well, you know, and knowing exactly which silicon rev and things like that. So all of that server sort of scenario was there. The challenge for me was, you know, as a small software team, and I was having to manually scan and my architects were manually doing the same manual sorts of scans. We were scanning all the packages for licensing and compliance information so we could comply with the license, the open source license. And I knew that my colleagues at Wind River and Monte Vista were looking at the same plant, you know, the same packages and systems, and we had no way of sharing the information. So um, we were all nights and weekends trying to summarize what we had and being very frustrated that we had no way of sort of saying, hey, I've looked at this package it's got this stuff in it this is what i'm going to be doing you know this is a summary here there was nothing there so discussions started happening in 2009 2010 on the subject and uh that's sort of when spdx started and i sort of started with it at that point um there was independent before that there were some discussions going on um at the i guess at the legal side as well Linux the Lakes foundation but um i didn't get started till i was you know, we sort of came up with the first draft and put it in and we started meeting its groups on, on a regular basis. It was part of the FOSS Bazaar initiative, actually, if you've heard of that. Um, and then it moved to be its own package and the uh, own project under the Linux Foundation called Software Package Data Exchange. Initially, it was just referred to as Package Facts, not exactly a creative name, but that's what we, that's what we were trying to capture. And we still sort of stayed true to that, and then it just evolved from release to release, use case to use case over time. And uh, about 2015, we started thinking about the security problem because we were seeing security and people being very interested in HARP, you know, in the secure in the vulnerability stuff. And at about same time, about 2015, I actually ended up um, picking up a job at well, I picked up a I got offered a job at the Linux Foundation to work on a different project to a different kind of different issue. And so um, I've been sort of working on it ever since here, too. So I've worked on it through other companies. And Alexios was one of the fairly early on participants in this as well. So um, you want to tell yours, Alexios?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I came to the, the whole idea of SBOM from the license, from the legal compliance point of view. So, you know, software is obviously under different, is released under different licenses and many or all of the licenses have some obligations that you have to fulfill. So when you actually deliver a piece of software, you have to look at all the components and find out all the obligations and fulfill them, which is not, you know, uh, incredibly complex. Uh, but it's not trivial right and it's definitely not uh, something that can be done uh, very easily so um, this generated the the idea in order to know all my obligations I have to know all my components and this is where the whole thing started again we have to have a table a table of contents of everything uh, all the components that are in there
1: I feel like most of the focus that in the environments that, that I'm in, I, I, I think and hear the most about bombs in a security context. But it's, it is interesting to me to have to, you know, talk about the, especially your origins and licensing.
2: At the heart of licensing, you need to know the components and the relationship between the components. Right. The same for security. <laughs> so you may as well reuse what's yeah. already been put in place and extend if there's something that's missing. Um, and that's pretty much how SPDX has been growing through the years. Is we've been sort of talking to people, and if we can't show them how to use SPDX to represent their use case today, we consider adding in more. We, you know, add in what they need to in order to do their use case. It's very much an organic. What What are some other use cases that um, aren't related to security and, and licensing? Uh, export control oh. <laughs> standards. Export standards mm-hmm. is another area. People, some people want to record what standards have been complied with. Uh, Some of these things are sort of making their way into future versions now. Um, Another case that is coming up is um, AI. There's a lot of machine learning out there right now today. And how do you represent what has been trained into your data model so that you can reproduce it? Uh, This isn't necessarily, this may or may not be a security issue the same way everything else is. But Being able to sort of extend into those types of use cases is the direction, you know, we're certainly heading um, with SPDX, um, as is, you know, how do you build your system? Um, You know, what tool chains, what options, who's been doing the builds, things like that. We all need that for sort of provenance. So some of it gets into security and some of it gets used in other places too, like safety. And so things that are safety critical need to have some a lot of this
1: information as well. So you mentioned provenance. I have it as an association with art and that's <laughs> based on my, you know, past life, a long story. But how does, how does Provenance sort of fit in? I, when you have this, this food label, as we, as we said, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, your S-bomb is effectively mm-hmm. a, a, a table of contents, a, a food label, just a document indicating what's in your software. How do, how do we represent Provenance in that way or how do they fit in?
0: Yeah, software is even more complicated than food. Right. So in food, you typically want to know, you know, does my uh, does this package food contain peanuts because I have allergy, right? And you see the label whether it contains peanuts or not, right? But uh, what about if uh, you really wanted to know, yes, it... Uh, contains it does not contain peanuts but it contains sugar which was originally processed by using some method right so you don't want only to have information about what is inside but you want to have information about how the final product came to be right so you want to record the you know the generation information And this is what you usually call provenance, right? We take this part and we uh, uh, use these tools and we generate this stuff, right? So uh, there are cases and uh, uh, that you won't know uh, the complete uh, history of how uh, a software system was created.
2: The reason you're hearing a lot about this right now on, um, the security side is the, um, attackers have recognized that the supply chain security and the components, um, are a fairly rich target. So I think there's been like, something like uh sonotype puts out an annual, uh, report. Um, and Uh, In that report this year that just came out, I guess, last month, uh, supply chain attacks were up 742% this year over last year. And last year was up 600%. So it's a pretty ripe area. Um, Yeah, it really is. and, And when you think about it, you know, the tool chains that you use to build something, if they've been compromised, that is suddenly a large swath of things that people can take advantage of. And so this is why hardening our tool chains and hardening the flows and actually knowing exactly which version you've been using for building things and which components are then creating other components is part of why we need to get the supply chain um, hardened and that's why it plays in, in my mind.
1: Yeah, so so along along those lines, actually, yeah, that's a that's a good <laughs> that's a great segue. So, you know, you mentioned the recent supply chain attacks, and it's become an, an attractive nuisance, so to speak. So, you know, the idea of an S-bomb is, is definitely not new, but I, I the way I see it is that there is renewed interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought we should talk a little bit about the, the executive order that came in 2021 that required guidance on software supply chain security. And I just, I wondered from your perspective, because again, you've both been in this a ve- quite a while. and I wondered what what's changed really between twenty fourteen when the Cyber Supply Chain Management and Transparency Act failed to pass and twenty twenty one. Is it just the increase in attacks? Is there more going on there?
2: Well, so I think the I think it was the wake up calls with the various vulnerabilities starting to play into the role and then the time to remediate these vulnerabilities was be started being paid attention has also increased. Right. And it was in the, in the, in the regulatory sphere in particular, the FDA got very interested in this whole space, which suddenly moved a lot of the medical device manufacturers and the hospitals to get interested. And so NTA took the lead back in about 2018 on trying to get some people talking to each other. And rather than everyone, every industry segment creating the ONS bomb format, try to agree on some common principles. And so discussion, it, you know, what emerged in 2021 had actually been worked on since about 2018 and trying to build up industry consensus before the limelight and spotlight hit it to say, okay, what is a minimum S-bomb? And so what the NTA ended up publishing as their guidance wasn't quite what the stakeholders came up with. We actually asked for things like hashes <laughs> to make sure things hadn't been tampered. with, And that was a step too far, apparently. But... We've, they were sort of working towards this and trying to understand okay, what are these ingredients and what are the relationships? And then how do we expand it out? Uh, so, what the NTI guidance was is a minimum. And there's a lot more out there than that minimum in all of the formats. Um, obviously, from SPDX, because of its history, it's a lot more um, new, able to represent a lot more nuances and details on the licensing side than any of the others can as well as on the relationship side. But for the most part, you know, the stuff is there and building up on it, why, you know, it suddenly was sort of like the FDA got interested, the energy sector got interested because of, you know, the um, pipelines and things like that. And so we've had these regulatory bodies getting interested and that is shifting the industry a little bit. The executive order just basically summarized it up, and then basically got the power of the GS, you know, the U.S. government um, acquisition behind it, which suddenly all the companies suddenly started paying attention to. Up till this point in time, it was only really the forward-thinking ones who were planning for it and also knew that they had to do it for other reasons, but they didn't really make it visible. But now, all the ones who had the forethought, like Intel, to do this work, (laughs) it's there and they can take advantage, like Alexios.
0: (laughs) Yeah, one of the important points that Kate mentioned is that when we're talking about software bill of materials, people should not think that this is only restricted for software companies that release software, right? Nowadays, almost everything that you're getting includes software. If it's a medical device, if it's a car, if it's, you know, anything, a satellite, a train engine. So everything includes software, right? And Even if we, you know, uh, it shouldn't be thought of uh, something only have to do with the IT industry or only for uh, software companies. Everyone is using and distributing software, right, in a very complex supply chain because you're getting components with software for somebody and you integrate it and you deliver something with software to somebody else who might also integrate it to, to a larger system with software again. So the whole idea of an S should be to cover all the software being transferred around, right? Uh, but we shouldn't be thinking, you know, uh, 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 only for the usual software products that you're getting.
1: So, uh, speaking of, <laughs> I like I, I appreciate that you uh, said Intel is is one of the forward thinking companies that was on top of this, and I thought. If you could both talk a little bit about your work specifically with the SPDX standard, and then maybe we could talk about the multiple standards.
2: So what we've been working for, I guess, about the last two and a half years, so if you can correct me, is um, basically one of, the, one of the people, one of the feedback when people are starting to look at these s bombs was they were thinking, I don't want to carry this licensing information. I don't care about licensing information. So one of the things we started working on was making it more modular. Um, and working and building up uh, a concept of a core and then various profiles to let us extend into other spaces, like, like data sets, like eventually hardware, things like that. So the notion of uh, setting up this infrastructure was something that you know the team has been working on and reworking the specifications for it. With the core though, we also, in addition to the licensing, we're obviously going to have a security profile. We're going to have a usage profile. Now, this has come about, and you see evidence of it starting to show up in 2.3, which we came out with this last year. But with, um, when is something valid until? When's your expiry date on that package of food that you've got, right? There's certain cases, especially in the machine learning side, where you, you know you, you have to force a retraining with new data, things like that. And in the automobile manufacturer side, you're allowed to use something while you're building up a car, like building up your system, but you can't take it to production. So there's various conditions on use and usage. Um, and so starting to catch some of that is one of the profiles. Another of the profiles is the build profile, which is that provenance we were talking about a bit earlier. Um, how do we actually build up the proven? You know, how, is, how have all the evidence, pieces of evidence been built? Um, The AI models is an AI profile is there and then the data set profile. So we're looking at trying to incorporate these uh, additional profiles into SPDX so that people who care about these spaces can catch what they need. Um, Reproducible builds has been a big part of um, a good practice. And so making sure the evidence is there so you can be authoritative as to whether or not your build has been reproducible and nothing has been tampered with. Also plays into our supply chain attack defense. Um, so that's kind of what we've been working with with SPDX right now. We've been doing a lot of work up till now on um, making sure that it was uh, able to go through to be an international standard. Uh, we took um, the 221 uh, two, version uh, through ISO and we made it an internet and we got it with feedback we got it through internationally and the 221 is able to satisfy the minimum uh, elements of fairness bomb from the NTI guidance and then some but you know we've had we've we've got what we need for today but we're reworking SPDX for tomorrow and I'm pretty much involved in that and the profiles I said tend to spend my time with our sort of the AI profile the data set profile And then some work with the build because I I care about builds for safety. So those are the things I'm sort of looking at. And then I've been working with some of the other LF projects, uh, one like Zephyr um, and one like Yachta, which is uh, um, both ones that Intel is actually quite involved in. So again, see earlier about forward thinking, but in both of these projects right now, um, in particular, um, it's a one-line change to suddenly start generating your S-bombs automatically for products built with these. It's fantastic. Yeah, so if you, you know, it's a config change inside Yocto and you can generate out your S-bombs for your build tool chain <laughs> and then the S-bombs for what that tool chain works on and then the S-bomb, uh, to for libraries and then the S-bomb for the final image. And that just, like I say, it's one line change in inside Yocto for that. And then in SPDX, you say, you know, it's got the West build tooling, which is internal stuff for Zephyr. But it says, you know, West, SPDX, and then West, you do your builds. And like there's dashboards out there with like three S, like each application has three S bombs One for the sources of Zephyr, one for the sources of the application, and then one for the build. And the build is doing something really kind of cool in the sense that the source files that make it into that build um, are explicit with the .os that make the libraries. And those dot .libraries make it into that final elf image. And so you have traceability with hashes and verification all the way down from your ELF image to exactly which files made it into there. And in the embedded space, that's kind of key, especially in the vulnerability space. You don't want to have to update something if the file is, you know, if the vulnerability isn't present. And so being able to be very explicit and being at that high fidelity is necessary to avoid um, false positives and, you know, frustration. So these are things we sort of care, I care about. Okay, I care about safety. I care about security, and I care about. How do we I make like this it. efficient for everyone? Because um, you know, some of us have banged our heads against walls a few times on false positives and you know, dealing with what the automatic scanners are picking up and then realizing it doesn't matter. And how do you communicate it over and over and over and over again? Well, the best way to avoid communicating it over and over and over again is to be able to say, No, that file with the vulnerability isn't there. You don't have to worry about it. So these are things I care about from SBX side. Alexios, over to you.
0: Okay, so uh, a little background information first. So we talked about S-bombs, right? The table of contents or the bill of materials of what's inside some software or uh, other information about components, right? SPDX is a standard that specifies how to write down this information, right? Uh, once you decided this is the information I want to transmit, SPDX is a standard that says, okay, you can write it down in this format and it supports you know, uh, different formats. You can do it in JSON, you can do it in YAML, you can do it in spreadsheets, you can do it in pure text files, you can do it in XML, whatever. So, uh, and SPDX is an ISO international standard. right? Uh, what is also very interesting is that SPDX is an open standard completely developed in the open, right? So by a very large or pretty large community. So whoever is interested in this uh, topic uh, can join one of the regular calls, too many calls per week, uh, (laughs) depending on your interests. Uh, So you might be interested in the legal part or you must be interested in the technical part or you might be interested in one specific area like, uh, you know, AI or build information. And... uh, uh, then anyone can contribute, and we all work together and reach a consensus and find the best way to express. Remember, SPDX is the way to express this information, right? So, uh, after all these years and all these you know uh, hours of uh, experts working on that one, uh, we believe that you know the, informa- the format that we have eventually reached is capable of expressing uh, all the use cases that have appeared uh, until now, right? Because, uh, you know, we start designing designing something, and then, you know, in one of our calls, somebody comes and says, but I have a very use of different use case, and uh, we need to, uh, you know, we need to express this kind of information. And then we work with them and uh, add more things or adapt the standards that we already have, right? So SPDX as a standard is a very collaborative effort, right, by lots of lots of people who work with that and uh, define the format that uh, we're talking about, right? And uh, I personally, I'm involved in uh, yeah, a few of these areas because I'm interested in uh, uh, lots of them and also in the infrastructure about the standard and how to express it and stuff like that.
1: So that's SPDX, which again, you, you were both heavily involved in, but there are multiple standards. There are multiple standards like Cyclone DX, Software ID. Why have we not collectively settled on a single open standard? Do you ever expect that to happen or will interoperability be the key?
2: We tried. Other people didn't want it. <laughs> what it comes down to. Everyone wants to do it their own way. So we tried. We got some people to come and collaborate with us. We did a lot of changes into the, our governance to make it possible, actually, as a project. And so um, the OMG SISC group uh, was trying to sort of do work in this direction. And so they started, They merged with us last year. Again, actually, it was a year before, now that I think about it, to basically... Get to something that we could all agree on and that had the right level of formalism that they needed for this work. Um, but the other groups thought that they could, well, software, software IDs have been around for a long time. The trouble with that was that they're, they were not going to take the standard in some of the directions we needed it to go. And so it's there, it can do the minimum per NTIA, but it really hasn't been evolving much since then that I've seen. Maybe other people who are more into that community you know, it mm-hmm. can give you more insight, but it can represent the minimum. It's where it's useful is in terms of the identifications. Um, people are sort of looking at using SWIDs as a way of identifying things that are not open source projects and using SWID tags there. So there's a component in a relationship for to play, and SPDX can link to SWID tags as well. It's one of the things we've been trying to be pretty inclusive about. Um, the other thing then is um, Cyclone DX and there they sort of looked around and went no nah, we don't like this approach these approaches and we're going to we've got our own ideas here and so they put that out and you know we're very much focused on what the minimum subset that they wanted to represent was and as it's been evolving um, we're finding people that are using it are having to create their own namespaces <laughs> and are having to basically put the fields that they want in addition to the cyclone dx So all of a sudden, I don't know if we're going to get people being able to communicate with these things because there's a namespace over here with some extra fields and there's a namespace over there with some extra fields. And so it's going to get interesting to see different approaches. So we were trying to basically pull, you know, and work with everyone to try to make sure everyone was satisfied, but people wanted to try different experiments. And so, you know, I think the market will eventually decide how they want it to go. Uh, At the SDX community, we've been focusing on trying to build consensus and be international. I think that's a good approach. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and in the point that you mentioned, you know, uh, do you expect that there will be only one in the future? Yeah, this is you know very much in the future and pretty doubtful. But interoperability is definitely uh, a key, right? So whenever we uh, try to uh, uh, when we when we're thinking about uh, uh, adding something. Uh, we always think of how this can be translated into other formats, right? And uh, currently, I think most of the uh, S-bombs that are expressed via the base sets of all the formats can be automatically translated from one format to the other, right? So we're not looking at something completely different, right? So you can have automatic translation uh, from one uh, to the other uh, as uh, it was mentioned if you have custom extensions and you only you are the only one who knows about them yeah of course then yeah. uh, it's going to be uh, much difficult and it should be the person who maintains the translations to have some way to interoperate with uh, other uh, formats Yeah,
2: you know um, I think the key Alexios sort of said there was the fact that it's only a minimum that works. And so, you know, we 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 do format. We do focus on that minimum for interoperability. But realistically, you're going to lose information if you go from SPDX to another format. Uh, specifically, you're going to lose fidelity of some of the information, especially in the licensing side, in particular. However, we do let we've well, we've added links to things like CDX and to Software ID and to Software Heritage IDs as well, which is another way of um, descri- describing some of the software, and it's a unique. Um, starting point for software that's open source. So you have a public repository, so you can build off your whole chain of trust from the software build side from that side. So the software heritage IDs are, you can link to those, you can link to Cyclone DX documents, you can link to um, software IDs, tags, things like that. So we're just trying to work with a wider ecosystem here.
0: So let me give you an, an example, for example, <laughs> We're talking about software and licenses, right? And almost all different formats say this is the software and this is the license that it's under, right? But having gone through this exercise many years ago in SPDX, we found out that the, a single license attribute is not enough. So you might want to express that the license declared in this software is this, but the license concluded by somebody who really checked and want to add the correct information is something else, right? So they're different. It's not a single property that it's licensed. You might want to record more information about licensing. As, for example, you know, uh, the example I gave is two different licenses. And so, for example, this is some information that is readily expressible in SPDX. The other formats, I think they do not yet support that, right? They only have one property license. So you can always transform one way. So the information that you have in SPDX, you can express it in some other format, but you will lose some of the information, right? You have to decide which of the two license properties I'm going to record.
1: you know speaking of software licenses um, you mentioned uh software ids swids being uh, used more maybe in proprietary software but i wanted to point out we're we're all open source people here like we're heavily biased i believe uh, toward in, yeah. in that direction um so i wondered how, how do the needs of open source software differ from proprietary software when we're talking about s-bombs and do they differ i mean you know a, a Document is a
2: document is a document, right? Or just a question of how much you want to make visible. You can re- you should be able to record proprietary as well as open source. And realistically, most proprietary products right now are composed of a large part of open source, based on all the analysis. It's right, exactly. So you've got to record both. Um, if you're even if you're doing a proprietary project, you're doing everything in the open. Easiest case. Um, now, the the challenge becomes a lot of the um, Infrastructure that we've been working with historically has been used to working with proprietaries, and sometimes doesn't think about the fact that all these open source components are there. And uh, so, what they ask for is more oriented towards a product, as opposed to understanding that made up mm-hmm. a whole bunch of projects and proprietary. But I think this, that's shifting over time. I think we're seeing that change. Like, you know, in that executive order you referenced, one of the things that they were asking for was to list when known all the open source that's there as well as products. So you sort of know where your boundaries are of risk and what's transparent, what may not be transparent. So I think, you know, we're seeing the shift in that, but we've got a lot of, you know, safety standards that assume one methodology. We've got a lot of um, regulations and so forth that assume certain things that are don't really have open set in their mind open source in their mindset. so that's always a challenge for uh, interpretation and evolution of these things.
0: Yeah, it's not that the needs for software change. It's just that the um, whole infrastructure of software is a little different, right So when we're talking about proprietary license software, you usually have somebody who publishes it. And somebody who publishes specific releases. So I can say, I got from this company X, this software Y, version 2022. Right. So this is very specific. When you go to the open source world, you know, everyone can publish software, everyone can fork and publish their own software, their own version of the software that is usually associated with somebody else. And everyone can make releases, you know, multiple times per day, right? So this whole idea of having, you know, a single uh, vendor producing a single product with specific releases, it's not, you know, it's a little fuzzy on the open source. So you have to accommodate for that and you have to be flexible. And actually, uh, inside Intel, uh, we have seen this issue, right? Because... Uh, we were obviously uh, working a lot with bombs and we knew bombs from our hardware uh, products and we definitely know, you know, we are producing this hardware product and this is a specific release, this specific product number that we are uh, distributing out to the world. When you start going to the software and especially to open source software, right, uh, this uh, very neat Uh, classification does not always hold, right? And so, yeah, we have to do much uh, extra work uh, in order to accommodate all this uh, flexible release thing.
1: Focusing back on the the engineers and developers who might be listening, who I hope are listening, what what are the most important things that a developer or engineer should know about... Uh, both their role as a consumer and a producer of s bombs.
2: As a producer of s bombs, make it easy for other people. <laughs> as much as possible for any product you're doing or any project you're doing. If you're working on infrastructure, try to make it so we can automate this stuff at scale. If you're producing it and you're just using the tools that are out there, there's a lot of options. Find one that works in your development flow. Uh, It's probably the best way. And if you're consuming it before you start using the soft before you start using software, make sure you understand exactly what you're bringing in and using. So ask for an SBOM or find out what the release is there or generate your own if you need to from the upstream open source projects just so you have a full record of exactly what you've pulled in and you can see what you may have transformed or what might have been patched since you brought it in so you have an accurate um, way of understanding what may happen.
0: Yes, from the development point of view, again... uh since I'm, you know, advanced in years and I've been (laughs) working with computers for a very long uh, time, uh, modern development methodologies at some point are very confusing, right? Because we have come to uh, uh, the point where we have complete ecosystems that uh, you, in order to build something, you define some prerequisites, and things are, you know, downloaded from the internet when you're building something and you might not even know what gets in there, right? So at some point, you should really know what's happening in the software that you are building, right? And uh, you should keep track of what gets inside your software system. So as a producer of software, you should know what's inside and ideally, you should be producing an s again, the table, of the table of contents for what is inside your software. And uh, we have many tools right now that by the time that you build something, you can uh, automatically also in parallel create the bill of materials because you know what you're doing.
2: I think it's important to understand that when we start working with open source, we could do greps. We could do it manually. However, that doesn't work anymore. We have to have automation in there for us to scale and the pace change yeah. across the like across the open source ecosystem. Um, I'm not, I haven't seen a good stat for it, but as soon as I find one, I'll probably quote it, um, in future is, but the changes like the Linux kernel itself. Right. We've got like, um, nine commits an hour going into there. Okay. Zephyr, which is a nice little small open source, like it's an open source project. It's sitting at about almost two commits an hour. And these are like a fraction, like Kubernetes um, is up there as well. It's you know closer to the Linux side of things. But all these changes per hour happening are features and bug fixes. And so the rate of change in the open source projects is tremendous. And people just can't keep up by scaling. And you know one bad change might be a vulnerability or something like that, that has to be remediated quickly. And we need to be able to know when it's fixed or not. So keeping it so we can automate this stuff is gonna be key. And keeping the automation simple for the developers is important for it to really get adopted.
1: When I think about SBOMs, I you know I think in terms of like, as Alexio says, modern, modern development, um, with modern development being so complex and the tools making it so easy in many cases, it is very easy to just, you know, run, hey, Composer install, magic, it's all there. I don't, <laughs> or whatever, you know, name your language, name your package manager. And, it, you know, it pulls in these packages and, and it's easy to kind of get lost and not fully understand your dependency tree. And and when something goes wrong, you, you know, you're in a position of having to hunt these things down. Could you talk a little bit about the connection between like, let's say a package manager lock file and an S-bomb? There seems to be an obvious parallel there. And I also wondered if you could talk a little bit about a toolbox for developers, is there a recommended toolbox you have to get them from conceptually from, okay, well, you've got your, you've got your lock file and you've got your fancy complex methods of development. Uh, You know, what, what do you add to the mix quickly to um, to solve your problems in terms of getting your, your, your S bombs to be effective and useful to others?
0: Okay. On the first uh, question of uh, the relationship between your lock file, as you mentioned, and the S Usually, when you're a developer, you only care about your immediate dependencies, right? Uh, so you put in your lock file uh, the the immediate dependencies that your software really needs. But these dependencies have their own dependencies, right? Mm-hmm. One of
1: them breaks.
0: <laughs> yes. So the SBOM should actually record everything but it's not your task as a developer to really expand the tree so usually what you're doing in your uh, i don't know in python requirements.txt you specify the modules that you're using right or in your go mod you specify the modules that your go program uses but then when you build something gets all the transitive dependencies and downloads it and installs them then builds them and uh, joins them all in the final uh, product right and this is where you can generate the complete information that your sbom needs so one of the very important things in all this for this to work flawlessly across you know different ecosystems is integration of these ideas of S-bonds and uh, uh, you know, uh, meta-information about packages to these package managers that you mentioned that keep downloading and bring whatever you need for your build. This is one of the big areas that uh, we're seeing. We're fortunately seeing some progress there, right? Uh, and uh, uh, most of the package managers definitely include... Metadata, right, and now are warming up to the idea of uh, having complete information that can be reused when somebody uses a package. Kate, you want to touch the other one?
2: So one of the things SPDX has been focusing on as a project is obviously we don't scale to all these other build infrastructures, Um, but what we've been trying to do is make libraries of how to produce and consume the formats available and um, help with the migration path, quite frankly, from one version of SPDX to the other. We've been doing this for a bit. So we have uh, libraries for Java, Python, and Go out there. And uh, certainly anyone who is working on tooling or working in packaging ecosystems, we encourage you to look at using the libraries, if you can, from a language perspective. And if not, if you're doing something um, help make it visible to others and work with with the open source ecosystem of making it easy to move things forward and share with others when you can. So if people are working with our libraries and have suggestions on how to improve them, uh, we're interested. There's a couple of projects that are trying to automatically uh, generate out SBOMs as part of your build flow, Um, some lightweight ones. Um, There's the SPX SBOM generator that's being worked on now. But there's also the OSS Review Toolkit, which is another uh, flow for managing. So, so, so we've got a variety of projects in our ecosystem um, that are working on this stuff that help. But I think it's a question of figuring out what type of tasks you're working on and what type of build you're working on and looking in that ecosystem for options. One of the things that's kind of important to understand here, and there's work coming on to clarify it, but there are different types of bombs out there. So there's things like a source SBOM, which summarizes your sources, where, you know, your components are files and they all get put together in a tarball type of deal. Um, that's historically where a lot of things have come in from. Um, there's also your build SBOMs, where you've built something or you've been given a binary and you try to break it apart. So you've done some analysis. So there might be an analysis SBOM where it's all heuristics. And so you try to figure out what evidence you can figure out from something you've been given. Then there's also, um, you know, what are you actually deploying on a system? How have you configured it? Because that could expose certain vulnerabilities or not. And, you know, what's actually running on your system. So there's a variety of different names and types of s bombs out there. And there's different tooling associated with each. So it's a question of, you know, where are you are in your cycle of trying to understand what ingredients you've got access to? You know, are you a user? Are you a producer? Things like that. There's different tools associated with different points there. So it's hard to come up with one place to just go for everything. Although people are trying. So we'll see. <laughs> what just... I think last
1: question from the perspective of, you know, an engineer, an engineer who's currently in the position of needing to solve this problem for their project or product, or, you know, they they're not currently generating S-bombs, for example, or they're not uh, consuming them properly or somebody who, who needs to, get up to speed quickly. What, what's a good next step that any of our listeners could take to really get up to speed on SBOMs?
2: Take the area that they're interested in and um, find a tool that types and just start playing and start looking at actually what produces see check that it makes sense to them. We've got reference examples in the SPDX repo where we have common scenarios and we've put, here's what the example SBOMs look like. Here's what the sources look like. Uh, so people can sort of see and try to understand that. So I'd say go into the examples and look and see what's there, and fi- see if you can find something that's close. And if something you can't find anything that's close to what you care about, put an issue in. And let us know you want to know about how to do things. Always, right? Yeah. Alexius, you got any thoughts here?
0: No. The important thing is to uh, for them to understand what they're planning to produce. For example, if we're talking about a developer that doesn't yet produce bomb than they want to produce, right? Which information they want to uh, have included in the bomb, right? And then, again, going back to the tooling, there is not a single magical tool that might work in all cases, in all environments, in all, right? And for, uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, uh, software development is so, uh, can be so differentiated that You need tools oriented towards your development methodology, right? Uh, Based on your programming languages, based on uh, your uh, release uh, methodology, based on your production schedule, all these things uh, have to be taken into account.
1: I think uh I think we've we've covered it pretty well. My hope is that people come away from this with a better understanding of you know why they need an s-bomb how to how to grok this whole process how uh, you know where to go next and and I hope they've learned a little bit more about your work. I wondered if you have any final thoughts if there's anything I didn't ask you about that you really did want to make sure to mention to our listeners. Um, If there's anything, yeah, if there's anything
2: else that you you didn't get to, but wanted to. I sort of alluded to it a little bit, but if you are working on IoT and you are, um, I I would encourage you to go look at Zephyr and then turn on the S-Bomb generation and just see what it looks like. So if you've got an IoT project at Zephyr, because it's easy there. And so finding other places where you can make it easy would be an awesome thing. And I just think that's a really good model for us to start with. Similarly with the Octos. Those are good models for us to work from. um, And so making it as easy as possible for other developers, it just has to be in the background. That's where we need it to be going forward. So those are places people can play with.
0: My final thoughts is... I mentioned before, SPDX has been developed by a very open and very welcoming community, so if you're interested in what you've heard and you want to contribute or you want to learn more, please join us and help us and you know any help is very welcome, and yeah, you will find something to really uh, orient it towards your use case definitely.
1: yeah there are always many, many ways to contribute and to solve your own problems and make other people's lives easier, right?
0: Yes, it's a truly, you know, open source way of scratch your own itch. That's how we started, right? And yeah. So, if you have an itch and you want to scratch it, please help us because others might have the same. And it will be great not to for everyone to do it independently. Yeah.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I think I think we all have those. And uh, and that's why we're here. That's why we're having our, this conversation. We have all we all entered the world of open source because we hadn't we had an itch. It might have been 15 years ago or 20 years ago, and we barely remember what the specific itch, itch was, but but it was there. So uh, I appreciate both of you very much for talking to me. I think this is going to be, be a good one.
2: Well, thanks for the good questions. I and mean, It's been lovely chatting with you today. Much appreciated.